Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Robin Koval. Robin leads Truth Initiative, the national public health organization dedicated to achieving a culture where all youth and young adults reject tobacco. A sought-after and award-winning expert on advertising, media, youth culture, and tobacco control, Robin is the New York Times best-selling co-author of three books, including Grit to Great, How Perseverance, Passion, and Pluck Take You from Ordinary to Extraordinary. So welcome to the podcast, Robin. I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, so happy to be in the company of so many uh, people I admire uh, in your in your former podcast. So thanks for including me. Yeah, my pleasure. And you certainly you certainly fit well into that company, Robin. So I, I'd love to hear how I mean, you've had such an interesting career, you went from this very high pressure, high powered um, advertising world and were extremely successful there and now you're in the nonprofit realm and I'd, I'd love to hear about your kind of your journey with that along the way. Well sure um, I would say you know as I look back uh, I would have said maybe four years ago before I came here you know I'm the most unlikely person in uh, I would have thought of of to be, you know, in the nonprofit space, in the public health space, uh, you know, not in New York where I sort of grew up and had most of my career. Now I'm based in Washington, D.C. But I think that's sort of the wonderful thing, actually, that, you know, I spent uh, most of my career in the advertising world. Uh, the last uh, 17 years uh, starting and growing an agency that, you know, ultimately grew to 700 people by the time I left. It was at the time called Publicis Kaplan-Thaler uh, with my wonderful business partner and co-author, Linda Kaplan-Thaler. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... I I loved it. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with some of America's greatest brands, uh, create campaigns that are literally famous. Uh, the Aflac Duck, for instance, one of my favorites. I love quacking. Aflac. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that later. Um, and so many, so many, um, you know, great opportunities there. But um, and I could have done it forever. But uh, I, you know, had gotten to this place where, you know, you start asking yourself, is there another chapter? And, and I think all of us now, uh, you know, we, you know, the days of thinking of work as being uh, or your career as being, you know, carved in stone at the beginning based on choices you make at one point of your life is so old fashioned that, you know, I like to now think of careers uh, as, you know, sort of a, a series of chapters in, in your book, so to speak. Uh, and so when uh, this opportunity, I mean, literally, 
came out of the blue. I was, you know, approached what I you know, consider talking to the, at then it was called the American Legacy Foundation, now the Truth Initiative folks. I thought, me, you want to talk to me? Um, you know, why don't you want somebody who's an expert in public health? Why don't you want somebody who knows a lot about the tobacco world? But it it was so clear that what this organization was looking for had built its reputation on a big public health communications campaign, the truth campaign, which is considered one of the, you know, most influential social change public health messaging campaigns in modern history. Um, They needed somebody to help kind of recharge it. It had been very famous and then had gone quiet for a while and there was an opportunity to reintroduce it. Um, And, and, you know, it kind of made sense to me because I felt that as someone in the advertising world, um, while I had never worked on tobacco business uh, and frankly always kind of hated the tobacco industry, my father was a smoker. I actually was a smoker until I was 28 years old and quit. And (laughs) sad to say that was a little while ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing for your lungs. Yes, it's a very good thing for my lungs. I don't know about uh, my skincare regimen, but, <laughs> but, um, and, and what struck me is that this was an amazing opportunity to, you know, pay it back, pay it forward in that the, you know, the tobacco industry in the United States was built by, um, advertising, right? Mm-hmm. The Marlboro man and Joe Camel and all of that. Right. And, and they were very successful with it. They were unbelievably successful. Imagine um, the statistics are much different now, but you know, in the in its heyday, back you know in the '60s and you know '70s, nearly 50% of of Americans smoked. Um, I mean, I think that at its height, it was about 48% of Americans were smokers. So right. these were incredibly successful. Um, advertising campaigns, and I thought, well, here's my chance to take all of the skills that I had, all the success that I had building brands for clients and uh, kind of, and use it for good and turn it against the industry that, you know, was responsible for so much death and disease in the United States. Tobacco is still the number one cause of preventable death in the United States Mm -hmm. about half a million people die each year from tobacco-related disease. So while we've made great progress, you know, the effects last a long time. Um, and, so- and it's still somewhat being perpetuated in ways. I, I saw on Twitter that you, uh, an article that you'd written about um, really celebrity, A-list celebrities in a way being spokespeople just by virtue of imagery. And that's, that's how smoking became part of how smoking became popular originally, but it still carries on. It's definitely still out there. So yes, I mean, one of the things that we like to do is shine a light on, uh, uh, things that are going on that we may not even realize. So we call them unpaid spokespersons. When a celebrity posts a picture of themselves uh, smoking Mm -hmm. on Facebook or Twitter, on social media, we're not even saying that, you know, the the tobacco industry paid them to do it or asked them to do it. I don't know and I don't care. But 
basically when you post a picture of yourself, whether you're a celebrity or not, but certainly for celebrities, you become a spokesperson for Big Tobacco, maybe an unpaid spokesperson for Big Tobacco. Right. They're using you as their marketing tool. Uh, and it's, it's, it's so pervasive. When you start noticing it, you realize how it's still everywhere. So, you know, we were talking about the Marlboro Man and Joe Camel before. I mean, they got kicked out of commercials and out of television a long time ago, back in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. But what's happened while... Um, you know, we kind of weren't paying attention is, yes, you don't see commercials for tobacco anymore on television. But I don't know if you've been watching Netflix or Hulu or, you know, Amazon Prime or any oh, yeah. of the streaming media platforms. But smoking is all over the actual content, the shows themselves. Mm -hmm. And that influences people. There's a, quite a bit of data that says when young people see uh, smoking in the movies, it's actually, and this is quantifiable, actually responsible for young people starting to smoke. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine how much more exposure there is uh, in a television show that we're watching on our multiple screens and that we have access to 24-7 versus a movie, which, you know, you see once, you go to the theater, uh, or maybe you watch it at home, uh, the impact can be, you know, many, many times greater. I mean, if you watch a show like Stranger Things, one of the most popular shows on Netflix, right. was, you know, nominated for Golden Globes and Emmys and all that sort of um, stuff, people are smoking all over that show. It's, I think, the one that over like 300 smoking um, instances in that little, uh, in one season. Wow. I mean, that's extraordinary when you think about it, that, that it shows up that many times on such a hugely popular show and people are influenced by that. So. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I like to concentrate on is, you know, there's lots of science um, and much work being done in, you know, clean smoking, clean, um, clean air acts. So not, you know, laws that prevent people from smoking in the workplace and taxes and all the tools that we have to, you know, help reduce smoking. Mm -hmm. But I'm also a big believer that the way you really can change uh, uh, an issue is through culture, mm -hmm. right? And helping people understand that what we see and what, you know, what we accept as popular culture, what we normalize is really what shapes our behavior. So we're always trying to, you know, shine a light on and denormalize the idea that smoking is acceptable mm -hmm. and we're having great success when, the truth campaign that I mentioned first started, this is back in 2000, 23% of young people, so eighth, 10th, 12th graders were smokers. Imagine that one quarter wow. of these kids right. smoke cigarettes. Today, that number is 5.4%. So dramatic success. Right. Well, and that cultural influence is so important. I mean, you can implement different sort of, you know, don't smoke kind of, um, rules and, and uh, taxation, but where it really matters on a day-to-day -day basis is what you see as normal, what you see as acceptable. So is, is, is that topic of smoking one that is particularly close to your heart? I, I guess I'm thinking about your career as an advertising person. So you were the, 
youngest ever EVP at an established ad agency. So uh, we, we tend to think of ad agencies as it's not really about the product. It's just, here's the client. We do what we do. Um, is, is this topic of, it, it, was that your experience? And is this topic of particular interest to you? Well, you know, it is of great interest to me. Obviously, that's why I, I did it and for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I really believe that, you know, as we were talking before, that messages and communication programs work. They're powerful. Having spent a life in advertising, I understand the the power of a message. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I felt I had something to contribute there based on everything I'd learned. I also felt that um, I have always been, you know, just um, so um, appalled by the way the tobacco industry uh, lied to the American public, mm-hmm. manipulated their products, um, and, you know, as, as a marketer, my driver was always, you know, if to tell people the truth. And when you tell people the truth and put the power in their hands, they make good decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the tobacco industry operated under, and still does, operates under, you know, the exact reverse of that, mm-hmm. obscuring the truth, hiding the facts, manipulating products so that, I mean, basically making something that's addictive. It's not your choice to smoke. I mean, that's what the tobacco industry would like you to believe. Um, It's not really your choice when you're addicted. Mm -hmm. It's the best business model in the world if you actually thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what kind of led me to, you know, when I had this opportunity to transition from one career to another and thinking, you know, okay, I would love to do something that was mission driven. Uh, it was an idea that was floating around in my head. Uh, I would like to take everything that I had done and see it, you know, be a force for real powerful social change. Uh, and this was, you know, sort of tailor made for me because most of the work we do, we do a lot of different things here, but our largest program is a big public information campaign. It's an advertising campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm good at that. Right. So it was like, yay, you found me. <laughs> Perfect fit. Yeah. And and so you came into this organization and, you know, speaking of culture, you talk about that kind of influencing people's behavior. When you came into the organization that you're in now, the Truth Initiative, were there are there things that you do in, in as uh, the leader of that organization that you think are particularly important in terms of an organizational culture? Sure. Well, I am a big believer in driving, as a leader, um, your responsibility for driving culture. I think that uh, it doesn't get enough emphasis that, you know, I'm, I like to call myself a recovering MBA. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, um, of course, you know, the classics in terms of being strategic and focusing on your your product or your service or whatever it is that you're doing. And, um, you know, Obviously, if you're in a for-profit, delivering profit, if you're in a non-profit, delivering mission, um, are, 
you know, that's that's our bread and butter. But I think not enough attention is paid to the fact that driving all of that are the people who walk in the door every day. And if you you have a choice, you there's always culture. Um, if there are people, there is culture. And if you you can either let the culture create itself and you become in service of it um, and you're always chasing it, or you can say, I, I, it is my responsibility as a leader to help drive a culture in this organization. What will help uh, create an atmosphere where people are energized about what they do every day, where people um, are kind uh, and collaborative with one another? Because let's face it, that's the only way we get things done anymore in this world. Right. Um, you know, the old days of everybody with their heads down, sitting in their office with the door closed over. Right. Uh, and and so when I came here, that was one of my, my biggest um, uh, objectives is not only how I re-energize this organization in terms of being um, first and foremost driving down the smoking rates among youth and young adults in this country and saving lives, but creating a group of people who are just absolutely passionate and energized to do that every day. So, you know, one of the things that um, I realized when I first came here is we had a lovely office that um, had, you know, in a beautiful building, in a lovely, you know, kind of fancy street in Washington, D.C., but it was a seven-floor building chopped up into these little tiny floors with these high-walled cubicles and people behind offices with walls and doors and all of that, and nobody talked to each other. And so, you know, I'd come from a more open environment in my former life. And the first thing they said is, we're moving. This is not <laughs> going to work for us. And we are in new office space now. We've been here uh, about two, a little over two years. Uh, and there are, there's glass. There's open space. We have very few people in offices. And the offices that we have are all glass-walled. Um, really to, you know, create a community that is um, literally transparent with one another. Mm. Um, the other thing that I felt is we, our mission is to achieve a culture where youth and young adults reject tobacco. We are talking to young people every day. We have to be relevant to young people. Sure. I felt we needed to look like an organization that if a young person walked in here, mm -hmm. if a 19-year-old walked in here, they'd say, hey, that's a pretty cool space. Right. I know what I can, I can believe that those people, um, you know, not only talk the talk, they walk the walk in terms of understanding young people. So we made it look very modern and youth-oriented. We have a mural on the wall done by a graffiti artist and oh, and things right. like that um and because i think culture is not just what we say but it's what we do and your physical space is very very important mm -hmm. um in creating that we have lots of um i i one of the things i realized is 
how important it is to be a learning culture, right? Learning is um, not something you, you know, you do, you go to college, you get a degree, and then you're done. Uh, In the world we live in today, it's so dynamic. We have to always be learning. So we took all of our programs that, you know, we did tuition reimbursement and training programs and things like that, um, and we gathered them up and gave it a name. We call it Truth U. Y-O-U, mm-hmm. obviously, you capitalized, right. uh, which is a way for people to really know about and embrace and be constantly taking advantages of ways to learn, ways to learn as a group, ways to learn individually. We have an author speaker series. We do lunch and learns um, because it's not just doing your job, but it's constantly finding ways to be a lifelong learner that I think are very important in driving a culture. That's great. Well, I mean, that level of, uh, I mean, I was so struck when you said that uh, you want to create an atmosphere that's collaborative and kind and that's not something that you necessarily hear very often in in organizations at least mainstream ones so i loved i loved hearing that aspect too so is is there a well, way you know, that, I, wrote, I, wrote a book, I wrote a book called um with my partner linda uh my former at my advertising agency uh my partner linda kaplan thaler we wrote a book together called the power of nice ah. that uh i think is an evergreen topic, maybe perhaps even needed more today than when we first wrote it. But but the idea behind it is really that, you know, nice in some ways uh, is one of the most powerful four-letter words there is. That, you know, it's not just something you should do because your mother told you uh, and because people, you know, will like you and, and invite you to parties or whatever. Right. But that it's actually very strategic. Um, people want to have choices and in you know the the world we live in today where everybody has access to one another uh it's incredibly fluid and dynamic people make choices to work with other people that they like and nice doesn't mean you know it gets a bad rap Uh, people say you know nice guys finish last Mm -hmm. and you know sort of old saws like that but actually nice guys and gals finish first and there's quite a lot of um academic research that proves that. So I'm a big proponent of, of the power of nice. Well, and it's, it, it kind of smooths human interaction. If you can behave civilly, respectfully with each other, honor each other and what we each contribute to me, that's, that's encompassed in nice, not, Mm -hmm. not, not the, not setting boundaries, letting people run over you, which is one sort of negative uh, definition that it has. Yeah, nice gets a bad rap. You know, people don't really understand it. They think, you know, it means you're, you're kind of naive or, yes, you're too accommodating. But I think what it really is, is finding a way to have your agenda, to achieve your goals, but doing it in a way where you enroll others in it versus, you know, kind of creating boundaries and my way is the highway or, you know, having to step on somebody to put your idea first. It's so much easier to accomplish your objectives when you have other people supporting you and rooting for you uh, than when you're, you know, constantly, you know, busy worrying about stabbing other people in the back or them doing the same thing to you. Well, one of the books that you wrote, Grit to Great, really, uh, you talk about resiliency in that book. And I'm wondering if, if culturally that's something, 
can you even cultivate something like that? Um, I, I guess I, I, that's how I think of grit, um, but it's obviously a much bigger definition. But Well, the great thing about grit, and one of the reasons why we wrote the book is uh, we all have it, right? You know, unlike, uh, you know, where you were born, how much money you have, where you went to school, you know, many things in our lives that we we maybe don't have as much control over. Uh, Grit is something we all have. Uh, We all have, you know, these component traits of, we like to make it an acronym so people can remember it, guts, Mm -hmm. resilience, initiative and tenacity. We all have it. We all can build more of it. Uh, We all can develop it in others. You know, there's a quote, uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, you know, former mayor of New York, incredibly successful billionaire. Mm -hmm. Uh, So somebody who's probably worth listening to. He, you know, he often says that uh, I, you know, I realized very early on in, in my career, and he talks about this, that I was probably not going to be the smartest guy in the room. He's very modest, obviously, very smart man. (laughs) But I probably was not going to be the smartest guy in the room. But what I could guarantee, because I could control it, is I would be the hardest working. Mm -hmm. And that that's the secret to his success. And in many ways, I think that's the secret of my success. Um, There are always going to be people who are smarter than you or have, you know, more access than you do, but you can actually control your own uh, ability to work hard, to stay focused, to bounce back, uh, which is the trick, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's it's not the falling down; it's the getting up. Right, that is the, is the key to success. Uh, and these are all things you know that we can do, and I find that incredibly empowering. Right. Um, You know, there are many things out of uh, our control in life, but grit is something we control. Well, you also talk about um, how uh, I read an interview that you did and you talk about not making excuses. And that seems that sort of ties in with the control aspect that you're really somebody who believes that, um, you know, you're you're self-determined that your success is so much dependent on you and what you do. I really do believe that. I mean, and I don't mean to discount that, look, there, you know, there's a lot of conversation um, in our country right now about privilege, uh, and that matters. It absolutely matters. But when you look at, so I don't discount that at all, but when you look at a lot of the research, what you find is that even when you've control for those things, uh, uh, you know, Angela Duckworth, who's also written on grit mm-hmm. and has done, you know, some of the really formative research on the topic, yeah, that even book. when you, it wonderful, um, and we love her, um, and talk about her in, in our book, uh, but you know, when you, even when you control for all of those things, the greatest predictor of future success, uh, across categories of people and age and, you know, many other factors is this quality of grit. And, you know, that's, you know, what, what we really talk about is that when you realize that, you know, we all enter the world from, you know, different places of privilege and advantage or disadvantage, but learning to understand that there are things that you actually do control yourself 
and that you can harness those and that you can develop them, I think is, you know, that's like the scales get ripped from your eyes and you realize that you do have um, the ability to self-determine your future. Well, I, I agree with you. And I, I wonder what, what are, are there things that you purposely try to cultivate in yourself as a way to really maintain your energy and really uh, have the most impact, continue to be successful? Uh, well, you know, I, I think sometimes it's like the little tricks that we play on ourselves because, of course, you know, most of the time all of us would probably rather be watching Netflix, binging, you know, <laughs> The Crown right. than being at work or reading a report. Or, you you, you know, say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's an excellent thing, and I highly recommend it to everyone. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think there are like uh, little tricks that you can play on yourself, really, uh, to push yourself forward. So, uh, you know, I uh, uh, I love one. You know, we all hate to exercise, right? So you can get on the treadmill and you can set it for 45 minutes, which seems like forever. Right. Or you can get on the treadmill and you can set it for, you know, nine minutes, then eight minutes, then seven minutes and, you know, count your way down, which seems like, well, okay, I can do nine minutes. Right. And now I only have to do eight minutes. And I, I think there are, you know, just little psychological tricks we can play on ourselves. Or, you know, I like to say – um, little things we can do to improve our performance. So, you know, I talk about the, um, the 30 minute rule that, um, you know, putting 30 more minutes into a task than you thought, uh, you were, you needed to do, uh, is a great competitive advantage hmm. because that automatically gives you that little boost of confidence it means you've prepared 30 minutes more than everybody else in the room. And so you're that much more ready. And what's 30 minutes of your time? Virtually nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's not that hard to uh, put little things in your life that help you overcome your challenges. Um, my, my partner, Linda, loves to talk about, you know, she's uh, always trying to, you know, eat more, eat healthier. Mm -hmm. And so she says she likes to pretend to that there are, this is going to sound disgusting. I hope I don't gross anybody <laughs> out here, that, uh, you know, she's trying not to eat dessert. She just says to herself, there are ants on it. There are black ants crawling all <laughs> over the dessert. I can't eat it. Right. And she doesn't eat it. <laughs> Hey, whatever it takes. I mean, that's a if that's a strategy that works for her. That's that's great. I, I love the thirty minute rule. I had not. I mean, I've I've done that. I've done it in terms of okay, I'm going to work on this for fifteen more minutes, and that'll push me. But I love that you've you've created this kind of practice around it. Well, and the reason why it works, by the way, is you know, there's um, I think uh, a kind of uh, uh, kind of dis uh, uh, conventional wisdom, that's the word I was searching for, mm -hmm. conventional wisdom that says, you know, your best ideas come first, right. which is absolutely not true. No. Your best ideas come at the end. Mm. And that, you know, because you have to get your brain in that creative 
kind of flow state and it takes a little while to do that. So working that extra 30 minutes, what you're really doing is sort of, you know, allowing your brain to kind of warm up and get into the right space and your best ideas will come at the end. Well, and you've been in such a creative realm and you continue to be, how, how do you, do you have a way of kind of tapping into your creativity or do you feel like there's a muse who only visits when she feels like it? How do you, how do you kind of make a connection with that within yourself? Well, okay. Here's an easy way for everybody to do it. Take a shower. (laughs) There's, there's you know, research and we've all, right. We all have those like brilliant ideas in the shower, right? That happens for a reason when you, um, I unfortunately tend to take showers that are too hot, which is probably good for my brain, but bad for my skin. Um, (laughs) When that hot water, you know, hits your, um, uh, your, uh, head and your body, your blood vessels dilate Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, sends more blood to your, to your brain. So you are literally feeding your brain. That's why we, one of the reasons why we have such great ideas in the shower, uh, you know, the, uh, take a walk, right. I'm exposing yourself to different stimuli. I think one of the things, you know, I always like to say that I find, wonderful for being creative is breaking habits, right? Habits serve us in many ways because, you know, like we'd never be able to get to work in the morning if we like tried to find a new way to work every single day. Um, So habits play a role, but habits also put us on automatic pilot and that's not good for creativity. It's disrupting your habits that puts, you know, novel ideas together in ways that you didn't think about. So, Break those habits. I mean, this is another like little easy trick. Um, people are always surprised when they do it. Next time you brush your teeth, use the opposite hand. Uh-huh. It's very hard because you're obviously, you know, if you're right-handed, you're on automatic pilot, you do it with your right hand. If you brush your teeth with your left hand, you're forcing your brain to rethink. And that starts to, you know, kind of create new pathways. And you think things a little differently. Um, or, you know, another way to, um, to break a habit is, uh, if you always go to work the same way, take a different route once a week, or we love to listen to music on, you know, Spotify or, uh, any of these streaming music services, which are so wonderful. A great thing to do is once a week, just pick some genre or artist that like literally you've never heard of, or you just pick off a list. When we listen to music that we're unfamiliar with, the same thing happens. It, it helps us to be more creative because it gets us out of our kind of, you know, usual habitual ways of thinking and experiencing the world. Mm, That's great. Do do you find that these things are still relevant, whether you're in a for-profit or non-profit? Cause that's uh you know, it's a different kind of environment. I think some people see nonprofits as being so completely different. I, I don't personally agree, but I'd really be interested. To, uh, your perspective is obviously uh, so immediate. Well, the the first thing, one of the first things I did when I came here is I told everybody, if you don't think you're a creative person, you've been lied to your entire life. Everyone is a creative person and that's your job. Um, you know, whether, you know, my life, 
before being at Truth Initiative, uh, it was, you know, officially a creative industry advertising. You're paid to come up with creative ideas, commercials and ads and things like that. But really um, solving any tough problem in our case trying to, you know, end the smoking epidemic in America. Yes, of course, we depend on science and evidence and data. Everybody does these days. But if it was only about the facts and science, uh, you know, we would have solved this problem already, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody knows smoking is bad for you. Uh, That's not news. So actually, this is a creative endeavor. How do we take something that everybody knows the facts about but yet still continue, or not everybody, but some people still continue to do. We need creative solutions to figure that out. So we are all creative people. And when I speak to people in any industry, there is something about your job that you can approach creatively. Um, Even if your job is to analyze data all day long, I mean, it's, you know, that's what machines do for us now. The brilliance in interpreting data is, you know, that little light bulb that goes off when you see, wow, if I look at this set of information and cross it with another set of information that nobody's done before, it, you know, there's a whole different picture that emerges. So we all have to think of ourselves as creative people. Yeah, I, I love that. That's great. Well, Robin, to wrap up the interview, uh, I'd like to do a rapid round of three questions with you. Are you game? Sure. All right. So the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Uh, That you do not do it by yourself. That the only way to have impact really is to empower other people's impact. Uh, That, you know, uh, the, uh, we, we all kind of, uh, I always like to call it bake a bigger pie, right? Uh, we can think of, we can think of everything as a zero sum game, you know, I win, you lose. But when you think of, you know, how do we bake a bigger pie? There's more pie for everybody. Yeah, that's great. Second question, what is the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? So this is a little uh, unconventional, but I have never been a planner. I, you know, I, when people sometimes come up to me and say, you know, what should my plan be for my career? The first thing I tell them is lose the plan. (laughs) It's a great phrase, right? Man plans, God laughs. I I think it's great to have an intention um, and, you know, to have, you know, some idea of a general direction of your journey, so to speak. But every uh, every important thing that has happened to me in my career, in my personal life, I have to be honest, I wasn't planning for. I never planned to leave advertising, leave New York, go from the for-profit to the non-profit world, be in the public health space. And I feel so lucky and so privileged to have had this opportunity come to me when I wasn't searching for. Yeah. Well, and that serendipity element and the ability to 
be able to say, hey, this is a great opportunity for me. I'm going to take it, even if it's not in the plan, um, is such a great, great thing to be able to do. So that takes courage. So I really applaud you for that. So the, the third question, uh, our last question is, what's one piece of advice you'd share with somebody who's saying, uh, as an entrepreneur or a leader, I want to have impact. What, what would you tell them about, about doing that? Well, I can, I guess I could only offer, I mean, I feel so strongly about these things that, you know, I did write books about them. Uh, and I, I do think the, the two things that drive impact is, you know, I talk about the power of nice, which is, is really about culture. Um, I think, you know, they say, right, um, culture eats strategy for lunch. If you want to have impact, build a culture that can empower that. Uh, and I think the second thing I say is, um, you know, is this idea of grit uh, that, you know, we we have the ability, all of us, to control our destiny. It isn't, um, you know, there's no there's no magic formula that the you know application of our grit, our guts, resilience, initiative, tenacity, is really what creates change and impact in the world, and we all we all have the power to do that. That's great. Well, Robin, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your own experiences from an extraordinary career and you're continuing to contribute in a huge way and, and have impact. I, uh, I so appreciate you talking with me today. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. So uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, of course, um, you know, in the in the world of social media, you can find me on Twitter at Robin Koval is uh, my Twitter address and uh, my uh, my email at uh, Truth Initiative is uh, rkoval at truthinitiative.org. Drop me a line. Wonderful. Thanks, Robin. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. My pleasure. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.